Hey everyone, this is Corey McGetty, former NBA player and MVP of the Big Three, and you're listening to another episode of Water Break. Today I join Ryan and Terrell for a special episode as we remember the life and the legacy of my dear friend, Kobe Bryant. Throughout the show, I'll share some of my greatest memories with the Black Mamba. For more exciting sports content, you should continue to listen to Water Break Podcast. Now let's get started. Hey everyone, my name is Ryan Cavan and I'm here with my co-host Terrell Thurlgood. What's up everybody? We want to welcome you to Water Break. Here on our show, we are going to have conversations with each other as well as with a variety of other guests who are just as involved and as passionate about sports as we are. From professional athletes, to coaches, to college players trying to make it big, to the high school athlete trying to earn that scholarship, and everyone in between. Whether you're a coach, player, or just a fan, we are here to have unique dialogue and perspectives on topics we have thought about, talked about, and are now excited to bring to you. So be sure to stick around, hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using right now, and get ready to relax and take a water break. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Water Break, and we're really excited about our guest today, so we're not gonna waste any time with any banter back and forth. Uh, Terrell's gonna <laughs> intro our guest here. Let's do it. We got joining us today, we got a former star at Duke University, drafted 13th overall in the NBA, 14 seasons in the NBA, MVP of the Big Three, father of four beautiful children, and a good friend of Kobe Bryant. Please welcome to the show, Corey Maggetti. What's going on, Corey? Thanks, guys. Thanks for letting me join. The water break. <laughs> I like it. I like it. We had to get you on. You know, we had Millie on earlier. Yes. And uh, we had a blast with her. So we gotta we gotta get you on the show. We're excited, and we really appreciate you taking time to be with us. Anytime, anytime. Yeah. And now we gotta get both of you together and just oh. and see that. You know what? She almost came today. <laughs> she like, should have. Like, hold on, babe. Let me get my. <laughs> let me get my segment in a water break (laughs) we're gonna we're we're gonna have to bring you guys back and and actually today we're gonna have to match up a few stories okay okay because you know millie when she was here talked a little bit about um playing you one-on-one and uh, we heard we heard a little trash talk from millie so (laughs) (laughs) she said that there were a few times she had beaten you but but the game had to stop a little early due to uh certain events is this true um (laughs) Can I agree to disagree? <laughs> what I would say is that she is an unbelievable shooter that would beat me all the time, and I didn't like it. So I think some of those one-on-one games, uh, it, it kind of got a little physical because at that time she was playing professionally and mm-hmm. I was playing, and you have that competitive edge. Yeah. But uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. That's so awesome. That's cool. So cool. Well, we're going to jump right in so our uh, listeners can get to know you a little bit here. Okay. But you grew up in Chicago. Tell us a little bit what it was like growing up being Corey McGetty as a, as a child. What was it like growing up in, in Chicago? Well, just a middle child. Uh, I had an older brother and a younger sister. Uh, my family, they moved from the inner city to Bellwood, Illinois. Uh, my grandparents stayed in Maywood, Illinois, down the street. And I would say, man, I had a, I had a great childhood, childhood. And I would say overall, as a kid growing up, you don't understand that the things that are are around you, but your parents allow you to be outside, to go and play on a basketball court, go out and play with your friends. And the one rule 
was that you needed to be back in when the lights came on. Okay. Um, but I, I would say, man, I had a, I have I have a great family. Uh, my cousins, my grandparents. You know, my grandparents were so it's inspirational to me. Mm-hmm. You know, my grandmother before she passed away, she bought me my first pair of Jordans, mm. and uh, you know, before that. You know, my my shoe size would grow every single year as my age. So by that time, you know, my parents, they couldn't afford to buy shoes like that. So my grandmother, she saved up, bought me some Jordans. But before that, I was wearing like pro wings. And, you know, if I wore a size 13, man, I was wearing a size 11. Because mm-hmm. at that time, it was really hard to get shoe size. So when I hit the age of 12, I had already wore a size 13 shoe. And so it was just the luck of the draw that my grandmother, you know, God rest her soul, was able to get me some nice J's. And I loved them. I loved them. <laughs> and I bet growing up in Chicago, like, you know, being, being around Michael Jordan, like getting the Jordans, like, was a huge deal. Well, that, you know, that didn't start until when I got into high school. And the only reason it happened was because Tim, Tim Grover, who's, you know, a Hall of Famer, basically trainer, that worked out Michael Jordan and, and several other NBA players from Kobe Bryant to Dwayne Wade from, you know, Quinn Richardson, Bobby Simmons, every mm-hmm. single player, Paul Pierce. It's a lot of guys that he had, you know, the ability to work with. And as a high schooler, he allowed some guys to actually play with the professionals at that time. And so for me and myself, myself as well as Quinn Richardson, we were very lucky to be able to play on that court, to play against Scotty back then. Uh, wow. You know, Ron Harper's of the world, Randy Brown. Um, back then, you know, Charles Barkley, Pat Ewan, Tim Hardaway. You know, this was really the old school basketball. And we had a chance to compete at that level. And also, I think more importantly, to watch hmm. and to observe and to, to be a part of what they were trying to accomplish on the court and teach you how to be a better player at, at that. Wow. So uh, we had we had Millie on. She was telling us about how you guys first met. And it was her, I think it one of her girlfriends or mm-hmm. whatever, went up to uh, the hotel room. Mm-hmm. And she said that she uh, she just stared out the window overlooking overlooking the city of Atlanta. And, and you were trying to make small talk. Give, give us your perspective on on uh, your first encounter with, with Millie? Well, probably not the best situation. <laughs> um, but what I would say, I was actually asleep. That's, she did say that, yeah. I was sleeping. And at that time, Eldon Brand, a former teammate of mine, had a friend. Her name was uh, Nisha Butler. And Nisha, they mm-hmm. were good friends from mm-hmm. New York. And basically, she came to visit, visit Elton and just to see how he was doing. I don't know what the relationship was between them, but I think it was just from a friendship standpoint. Mm-hmm. And she ended up bringing Millie. And like I said, I was knocked out <laughs> sleeping in the bed. And then when I woke up, I saw this girl. I'm like, what's going on in here? Like, Am I missing something? And uh, I see her and she basically, I just kind of looked at her. She just basically turned her back and did not say one word to me the entire time. I was like, hey, how are you? She did not say one <laughs> word. And that was that. And the next time I saw her is actually when the the Georgia Tech, the Georgia Tech basketball team, we played them, and I saw her 
like actually passing through when the game was over. And we just kind of like kind of locked eyes and we just smiled and that was it. And I remember um, as she walked past, it was like like one of those slow moments, <laughs> you know, moments, right? Where it was like the sun was like gleaming. She has like these real beautiful eyes. And I'm looking like, wow, she is just so cute. And uh, like, man, I wish I had a chance to kind of talk to her. But she like kind of smiled at me and that was kind of the end of it. Yeah. So. It's kind of how it starts. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. You seem like a little bit of a romantic there, Corey. I get- <laughs> well, I would say I try to be. I really do. That's so cool. Okay, Thanks so- to my mom. I got to give my mom a lot of credit for that. Yeah. There we go. So the stories did match up. Mm-hmm. We just we just wanted to see okay. if the stories between you guys matched up. I was in line. Right? I got it. Got they it. did. They did. So kind of tell us a little bit. When did you start playing basketball? And even, I guess, when did you first take basketball seriously? Because if, if I remember correctly in talking with you, it was kind of a little bit later in life. Mm-hmm. Well, Ryan, like I said, we you know, and I can fill you in, T. But I didn't start playing basketball until late 12 or 13 years old. And uh, before that, I was playing uh, baseball. And then from baseball, played a little football, but ran track. Track track, and baseball was actually my sport that I mm-hmm. enjoyed. And for some apparent reason, I, I would never forget walking to – the baseball field was like 105 in Chicago. And, you know, at that time, you know, I'm a taller kid. And usually the taller kid gets the biggest jerseys. But, you know, the biggest jerseys was basically the smallest jerseys. And I just kind of got tired of wear, wearing those baseball uniforms. So I'll never forget, we just finished. I was, you know, I was pitching at the time. At that time, I was throwing like 70 miles an hour you know, as a 12-year-old kid. Wow. And so they had to check my birth certificate. True story. They had to check my birth certificate every <laughs> single time when I went up to the mile because they thought I was much older. And my mom used to always have huge problems. Like, here, the, he, he's really this age, you know, and it was just a hassle. Wow. And then I just kind of got tired of, of, of baseball. And a friend of mine, um, that his, his grandfather's name was Pop, said, hey, you know, Corey, would you want to come play some basketball at the Boys and Girls Club? And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. You know, first of all, I was like, all right, I'm done with baseball right, mm-hmm. right now. I didn't want to play. And so I went to the Boys and Girls Clubs that we actually went, went to all the time after school, and they had a game. And he said, hey, you know, do you know how to play basketball? I was like, no. <laughs> he said, all right, well, what I need you to do, I know you're fast, so I just need you to run up, run down, and you catch the bat. Um, the basketball you throw it to Ryan or Darius and I was like all right and I said we know you could jump so if you see a rebound you know ball bounce off the rim regardless on either team I want you to try to grab the ball and throw it to Ryan or Darius I was like okay cool didn't even know how to dribble the basketball first of all so the first three or four possessions I would just catch the ball and start running and so this was like my 12 and 12 years old and then after that, I decided, like, all right, well, if you rebound the basketball, throw it to Ryan. So regardless of where they were on the court, you know, if they were out of bounds or I would just throw the basketball. So, yeah, I was absolutely horrible. Um, but I, I remember after that day, I was like, man, this game seems kind of fun. Maybe I should really work at it. So I ended up going to a basketball skills camp uh, in, at Eisenhower Gym. 
And, you know, at this time, there's probably 30 or 40 kids there. And I go there tr trying to learn, you know, some basketball skill. And, you know, they got us playing one-on-ones, two-on-twos, then five-on-five. And the one thing that stuck with me personally that changed as far as the trajectory of me playing basketball and really being committed to it, it was one kid, he was really good, and he would just call me George. I'm not sure why he would call me George. Hmm. And um, he said, right, give me the ball, George. So basically like Curious George, like, you know, like you're the terrible <laughs> kid that, that is trying to play basketball. And so he call, kept calling me George the entire time. Oh, man, George, you suck. You know, <laughs> George, you run over there. And I was so, I would say, more embarrassed than anything because here I am coming from baseball, which I was one of the best baseball players in the, in the county. And now I have to start all the way over mm -hmm. to play this game. And so that actually just lit a fire under me. Under me, that day. So that day, I uh, I got a basketball, and I worked at it every single day. Every single day, I did not stop. I was obsessed with the game of basketball and trying to improve my game. And I dedicated myself to when I go back to Eisenhower, I am going to find him. And I'm and I want to be him. I want to embarrass him. That was like my hmm. my thought process behind it. Wow. I mean, I could keep going for days with this story. Yeah. Did you though? <laughs> when you went back, did you embarrass? Yeah. Him? <laughs> so the crazy thing about it, I ended up going to another camp that was in in um, in the west side of Chicago. And um, if you go play in the west side of Chicago, you got to be tough. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the guys when they compete, they compete for as you know, physically, you would say it emotionally, talking, talking bad to you to see if you crack. And really, I went down there to to play. I mean, we would go there, you know, all the time with my with my parents. My my dad's parents stayed in the south side of Chicago, and so for me, it was more about trying to get better. And I went down there working on on my skill level, as far as from dribbling. Um, just understanding the game. And that was one of the things that I didn't know. I didn't know the understanding of the game. And that approach really changed as I started to see how those guys were aggressive, how they approached the game. They were very physical, and they just didn't take any nonsense, mm -hmm. you know. And for me, that time went to that camp, and all of a sudden I started, like, trying to figure out which little basketball camps to go to. And my mom was like, listen, you know, I can't keep paying, you know, for these little basketball camps, right? You know, I don't know. You got to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And the next actual camp that I went to, um, one of the counselors said, hey, man, you, you're pretty good. You know, it's another camp that's coming, and let me see if I can get you into this camp. I said, well, I'm not sure how much would it cost. So, well, let's see if we might have a sponsorship and we can get you into that camp. And so what happened, I ended up going to the next camp. And from there, it was basically a trickle-down effect that every single camp after, after that I was actually getting invited to because they saw from a potential standpoint. Yeah. And I just continued to work at it, just continued to work. I remember winning um, ball handling competitions, free throw competitions, defensive competitions, speed competitions, and... I just felt like, man, I, I am really enjoying this sport. And 
at the end of the day, it was really to get back at that kid about basically said I was terrible, that I didn't want to play basketball. And I used that fuel uh, to eventually go back to Eisenhower and completely dominate every single kid inside of that gym. Hmm. And that was basically the start. Yeah. Who's, who's calling you George now? Nobody. No one's calling me George, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of, you know, dominating, you know, mm-hmm. when did you feel like, okay, I got a real shot to play at the next level, to play at the pro level? Too? You know what, man? I, and it's kind of hard when you think about a guy that played 14-plus seasons in a lead that, you know, did you actually know when you had a shot? Honestly, like I told you guys before, it was basically about trying to get – you know, get the approval of, of that actual group. Mm-hmm. It wasn't ever about like going to play professionally. I just really liked the game, the game. Um, and I honestly, I would say if I had to really think about it, I never thought even from high school, you know, from, from junior high to high school to college to the even in the pros that I felt like, man, I, I can make it. It was that was never, ever my intentions People are like, what? You, never your intentions to make it to the pros where there's so many kids nowadays that they play, yeah. they eat, sleep, breathe basketball, and mm-hmm. it's all about that. But that that wasn't my my mindset. It was more about trying to get better at something that I wanted to try to get better at. And my dad always said, hey, you know, if you really want something, you need to work at it. You have to be the hardest worker. And that means sometimes you might be tired. Sometimes you might not feel well. But you just need to do it. And the example that he set was that every single day he got up in the morning that I never actually saw my dad, my dad up in the mornings because he worked so late. And when he came back from the steel mill, he was sleeping in the morning before we went to school. And the only reason that we saw my dad at the time was if we got in trouble, we had to wait up for him. And that now, you know, that's a whole that's mm-hmm. a whole nother animal. And so. I just saw that he dedicated himself every single day to get up and it was more about providing for his family. And, um, and, and through that, I just like, man, he, as I, as I got older, I just said that my dad every single day, never ever took a day off. Hmm. He never missed a day. And I felt like, man, maybe I should model myself after that far as from a work ethic standpoint, Wow. you know, uh, even if I'm not the most talented, I know for sure that I will work, I would outwork anyone. And that was my approach. Hmm. Wow. What was, you know, because of all that hard work, you know, obviously that led to you having a very successful NBA mm-hmm. career. And, but what was the feeling like on draft day for you, for your family? What do you, you know, I, I'm sure you can remember those emotions. What yeah. was it like? Well, I, I take you, you know, a couple of steps before because I honestly never decided, thought about leaving Duke early to to go play professionally. It was never in my mindset. It was always about me, you know, finishing my degree at Duke. And that was the number one goal Mm -hmm. for me. It was never even about basketball. The opportunity that that I had as far as going to Fenwick High School was that it gave me another avenue outside of going into the public school district, which at that time, it wasn't the best. And... You know, my my AAU coach, Carl Bridges, was the one that kind of said, hey, man, let's try something different. And when I think back at that time, it was the best decision that I ever made out of my entire life. It was the best decision that my mom 
she made for me because coming from basically the public system and where 90% of the people you're around are, are African-Americans and then all of a sudden you go to a school where it's only four black kids in the mm. entire school. And so from a cultural standpoint, it was a huge cultural shock for me. And I felt like, wow, man, I don't think I like this school because first of all, it's not anybody that I know. And it was a different mindset of the, the people that were in that building. It was a high academic school. And I remember that first day of school coming back home and telling, man, mom, I, I don't want to go to this school. This, this, this is not the school for me. And she said, you know what, just give it a couple of weeks. And if you don't like it, we, you can transfer. You can go, go back, go to Proviso West. And so I don't know what happened throughout that process, but I never left. You know, I, I end up staying, but it was the best decision because it taught me how to, from a diversity standpoint, it taught me how to to uh, understand how to coexist with everyone else. And then uh, from an educational standpoint, it gave me a great boost that I felt that I probably wouldn't have got, gotten from from that public school at that time, not saying anything about the public school system. But the approach to, from a learning standpoint and putting myself in a better position and not being a kid that is doing other things outside of what your parents want you to do, yeah. it gave me a better avenue. And that really led me to to the next point of, of my life as far as on the approach. And that approach really led me to as far as, you know, going to Duke and, and sacrificing from that standpoint. I mean, even to the point of leaving early, like I said, I never expected to leave early. Yeah. It was more from, I, honestly, it was a media, it was a media frenzy. Hmm. The media decided like, all right, well, we're going to put out these mock drafts on who could come out. We just lost the national championship game. And it was no talk about anyone leaving to go to go to the pros. First of all, it's never been a person ever to leave Duke, the Duke basketball program in the history before myself, Elton Brand, and William Avery. And so that was never on my mind. It was more about just the approach. Man, we were in the championship. We lost to UConn. We had won like 30 straight games, and now we lost the, the main game. And I was thinking about, man, I want to, I want to get more minutes. I want to be more of a factor and uh, I'll never forget during that championship game at halftime I'm walking through the tunnel and Grant Hill stopped me uh, Grant Hill said man what did you do I'm like what do you mean Grant I said why are you not playing I said Grant I don't know I just came in the game scored nine quick points and then all of a sudden I'm sitting down on the bench and you know the the UConn went on a run and he was just trying to figure it out and I was like well I don't know and basically, everyone thought that that was part of why I left to go to the NBA, but that was never actually the process, right? It's a crazy thing yeah. to think about hmm. that. And, uh, and I remember going to, to the weight room because I was working out with the football guys at that time. I just had this passion about lifting weights and fitness. You guys know that. Yeah. And... Um, all of a sudden, you know, they wanted me to do a press conference. Duke wanted me to do a press conference saying that, hey, you know, you're saying that you're, you are not going to the pros. I'm like, why am I, that, 
am I doing a press conference for what? Like, why do I got to do a press conference? So I literally ran. Kid you not. I ran and I ran back to the freshman dorm. And all of a sudden, everyone is looking for me to basically say what I'm going to do. And it was basically a, a weird thing for, you know, 18 year old kid. Now, yeah. all of a sudden, you they're putting this pressure on you from what the media basically said. Right? Hey, this guy can go top five. This guy can be a lottery pick. And now all of a sudden, I'm getting a call from basically Tim Grove. was like, hey, Corey, listen. And this one guy that I actually trust, like, hey, uh, you might want to consider what they're saying. I'm not saying you have to leave, but consider what, what they're saying. And before you know it, I'm running around the entire campus, running away from Johnny Dawkins, uh, Steve Wojciechowski. Mm-hmm. They're looking for me because now all of a sudden, Coach K – they want answers. One an- wants answers. He had just had hip surgery. And so he's home in his bed. They're trying to find me. And I just had to keep telling you. It's, just, it's a funny story. But all of a sudden, I run back to Eldon Brand's uh, and Will Avery's apartment. And I'm hiding in the closet. Literally, <laughs> I'm hiding in the closet. And Elton Brand's a big guy, he's 6'8", six, 6'9". Six, and he has all these long, his long clothes. He has everything hang, uh, hung up, right? You know, his shirts, his shorts, everything, his socks, all this stuff. He's <laughs> in the closet. And I'm hiding behind all of his clothes in the back. And Johnny Dawkins and Steve Wojciechowski comes in. And where's Corey? You know, Coach K wants to see him. And Eldon and Will like, man, I don't know where where he is. They say, you you guys know where he is. And so they looking all through the room. And Johnny Dawkins comes in the back and he literally pulls the clothes and looks through on both sides. And I'm like, did he not just see me? Like I was standing in there like a statue. And after that, they walked out. He didn't see me. So from there, I leave. I go back to the freshman <laughs> campus. And um, uh, my roommate at the time, time, his name was Dave West. Dave West actually went to my high school. And he was a football uh, captain of the football team, really smart, intellectual guy. And I remember Steve Wojciechowski and Johnny Dawkins knocking at the door. And they opened the door. Dave opens the door. And he said, he said excuse me, wh- wh- where is Corey McGetty? He's like, there he is right there under the bed. He's right there. And, and, and right then, I had to go right to Coach K's office, uh, basically his house, to have a meeting with Coach K. I just had to tell you guys this story. It's just the, one of the funny. People think I'm lying about the story, but that's an actual true story uh, wow. on the process. That's hilarious. You're running around all yeah. over the campus, yeah. hiding in closets, oh. under beds. I know they didn't answer your question, but I had to no, to give really that, that framework first yeah. of, you know, leaving school and the process in between. Yeah. That's funny. Wow. Uh, so speaking of playing in the next level, playing professionally, who, who were some of your, um, you know, favorite teammates that you ever played with? Well, some of my favorite teammates of of all time and – you know, it's a, it's a lot of different when you, you think about your favorite teammates. It's not just a way of, if you connected with that guy. You know, sometimes it can be about, you know, the way he worked, um, the way he had a business-like approach. Or, you know, you had some players from a communication standpoint that pushed you. And then another point of players that held you accountable, hmm. you know, in order for you to, 
you know, to push through your own potential. And if I look about, look back at all of those those players, um, the first guy I I would have to say this is for when Orlando, my first year I I played in Orlando. There's a few guys. Was Daryl Armstrong? He's one of the assistant coaches for the Dallas Mavericks right now, mm-hmm. and um, and he was an older veteran. You know, I'm a 19 year old kid coming in, and he really. Um, dedicated his time to talk to me and to push me and for rookie duties like hey I need to get him Hershey's chocolate basically the Hershey's kiss and coffee every single day every single day that was his thing and um and he he basically was you know took me and uh, took me under his wing Hmm. uh the next guy that I actually when I really started to take far as weight training serious the guy was Bo Outlaw from a physicality, physical mm-hmm. standpoint. Mm-hmm. If you guys don't know who Bo Outlaw um, is, Bo Outlaw, when I tell you he's like a real-life action figure. figure. And if he was to take his shirt off, I mean, shred it up, you would – I mean, it's, it's amazing. He, he played with the goggles. Yeah, and played with goggles. And, and he came in with so much energy every single day, with a great attitude every single day. You know, like unbelievable attitude. Uh, the next guy that really helped me out was Chris Gatlin, another older veteran guy that that pushed me. Um, and and lastly, the other guy from a weight room standpoint, and basically just taking the time to talk to basically a young fella at that time was uh, Ben Wallace. Hmm. And at that time, Ben Wallace wasn't the Ben Wallace that we know him as as. The guy that won a championship in, in with the Detroit Pistons, you know, multiple time defensive player of the year, multiple time rebounder, uh, champion uh, during each season, and he worked. Uh, when I tell you, he worked his tail off to put himself in that position to be a champion, uh, to be able to get his jersey retired and, and possibly be a future Hall of Famer in the mm-hmm. NBA on what he did with the Detroit Pistons and it all started early on in Orlando and Doc Rivers who was my head coach at the time in his first year you know pushed Ben Wallace to be a better player hmm. and so when I look at you know from that standpoint uh, even you know another former champion that was on that team was Chauncey Billups Chauncey Billups was actually hurt so he never played he was he was there yeah. but Chauncey never actually stepped on the court and so I had like some some real veteran leaderships around veteran leaders around me. And then if you fast forward as far as, you know, my nine years, basically with the Clippers, the one that I would say stood out the most. It, it would probably be from from all around was Sam Cassell. Hmm. And Sam Cassell is the assistant coach right now yeah. for the Clippers. He. When I tell you, he pushed me, he held me accountable, um, he encouraged me, he took me out to dinner, uh, he invested in my family and Millie. I mean, he, he honestly gave Millie the nickname Baby Cakes. He said, where's Baby Cakes at? Where's Baby Cakes? And it was like our little thing. And, um, and so that, that guy, was he was such an impact to our team and, into, and for me, as far as learning how to be a more, more mature player, hmm. 
Uh, and I and I put that in all the different categories. Yeah. And other teammates, you know, then I have to think about Quentin Richardson. I grew up with Q. Me and Q started when we were, you know, in seventh grade, basically playing. And um, we we played against each other in the church league. We played with each other on AAU team. We played against each other. We played with each other again in the pros. We played against each other. And then eventually, when we were done, we played in the big three together. We finally won a championship. And uh, you know, I would say for him, I've known Q his pretty much his entire life. And as far as from a friendship and an encouragement guy, this is when we were all fighting for position on the Clippers. No matter what, Q would root me on. Hmm. Win, lose, or draw. If he was playing, if I was, he would root me on. I would even say he even had a better attitude than me. Wow. And it was times with, especially with Q as well as Darius Miles at the time, they went to back for me in order to get me minutes, which is, is crazy. High character. Yeah. And um, those are the type of guys you want on your team. That, And from Darius Miles, his mom, God rest her soul, you know, after practices or games, she invited everyone over to have dinner, you know, because a lot of us didn't have our parents there. And Darius did. He had his mom there. And so she made us feel like family to come over to, you know, to go shoot hoops in the backyard. You know, you know, as far as what his, his stepdad at the time, you know, getting stuff on the grill, burgers, all, you know, uh, the PlayStations on like Xbox. They they made it more of a family type of feel. And so, I, you know, from far as from a French, they really from their friendship standpoint, and and showing you how to be, like you said, Ryan, a high character guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love them, and that's one of the reasons why. You know, me and Q talk talk to this day. We have such a great relationship. Same same way with Darius Miles. Same way with with Sam Cassell, and same way with even Katino Mobley, who was another yeah. uh, player for mine with the Big Three, who who really helped me to be a better uh, post defender, a better mid range player. And now I'm going from a, a basketball standpoint, um, you know, at that time. And, and Sam uh, Katina was another guy that took took me out to dinner. He was an older guy, same same as as, as uh, Sam. Mm-hmm. And then I had Keon Doolin, you know, like you look at him and what he did and uh, just always calling. Like when I tell you always calling, I hear from Keon to this day at least once a week. Wow. Just to see how I am doing, uh, just to see, like, how is your faith? You know, is there anything that you need to talk about? And if it's personal things that, you know, you might be struggling with, how can I help you? Mm-hmm. And, like, when I when I look at that part of, like, teammates, um, and, and lastly, uh, the last team, well, there's two more, and one of them is, is, one of them is my best friend, and Kalina Azubuki. And Kalena played with me in Golden State. Mm-hmm. And um, and then next is probably, you know, Steven Jackson. You know, people look at Steven Jackson as this crazy rah-rah guy. And um, if you pull back a lot of the layers of Steven Jackson, he is downright one of the most caring, loving per- people that you can ever meet. Wow. And um, even during the time of Golden State, as far as the dinners – um, the accountability, the accountability, 
for us going back at each other as far as from fighting and, you know, the intensity. He brought intensity every single day to practice. And he fought for his teammates. And, you know, whatever he has done during his career, you know, no one knows Steven Jackson who he really is and the guy that he dedicates himself and he puts himself to the back burner for someone else. And so that's what I actually loved about Steven Jackson. And, uh, and again, far as the intensity of it, but people wouldn't know that about him, Mm -hmm. you know, on what type of person he really is. And uh, so I'm thankful to have all of those, those friends in the NBA that I've had a chance to, to continue to talk to on a daily basis and teach me how to be a better professional, um, to be a better mentor. And, and I leave with Keon because he's Keon works for the NBA Players Association and he's a mentor to a lot of young guys. Mm. And so like all of these people have put in the put they're put in a place that actually helped me be a better person and even to help help me be a better leader in any any aspect uh, mm-hmm. of the the game or outside of the game. Wow. That's super cool mm-hmm. to hear all that and you know, I was thinking of a bunch of those guys you mentioned, but I was thinking of Catino. Mm-hmm. That, he still balls out. Yes. How is he still so good? He comes on House of Highlights, I don't know. Bleacher Report I, all the time, and he's balling up professional players in Europe and pros I'm, now. I'm like, telling you right <laughs> now, Ryan. I mean, I, I, you call him the cat, call him Cat Mobley, right? I, I, I think it's because he has so much gray hair now. I mean, he, 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 he switched his name now to his turn into the Silver Fox. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, his, his career was cut short by a heart condition. Mm. And, um, and he still plays. He's still in great, great shape. And right now, I would bet on Catino Mobley to destroy half the NBA guys that are playing right now. That's wow. how good, Ryan, you know. That's how good he really is. I mean, he still – he drives – you know, an hour and 40 minutes, even now, to go work out with Jordan Lawley over at Asics down in, in Irvine yeah. so he can get better and to compete. You know, he's he's just that guy. He has such a will. And there's so many guys in the NBA now, they respect Catino even more, and he's not even in the NBA yeah. because they see, how, like, what type of player that he that he is and how he can dominate and he can take over. He's just a really, really smart player. That's why I've learned so much from him. Yeah. You know, and you know, during the big three time, uh, we we dedicated every single day. When I tell you every single day, we lift weights together. We got up shots before and after. We got physical therapy before and after every single big three game. Every single game. Wow. He was dedicated, and he pushed me every single day. And so that was one of the reasons why we won a championship, because of him, you know, I believe, because, you know, mm-hmm. we assembled such a great – he was a co-captain at the time, but we assembled such good people that would actually fit into a system, yeah. you know, for the common goal is to win. Yeah. And you did that? And we won. You won. And we won, yeah. Well, we want to jump into – right into um, – you know, obviously this episode airing on Mamba Day 824. And we want to talk, you know, all things Kobe here for the next while mm-hmm. and talk about your relationship with him. Obviously, you guys were friends. You know, there there isn't a ton of 
former NBA or NBA players that live in Orange County in mm-hmm. this area, and you guys had a relationship. Um, so we want to jump into some of that and, okay. and uh, talk some things here about about Kobe. Obviously, um, you know, celebrating him this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but tell us about the first time you met Kobe. <laughs> you know what? I, I didn't even put him on my list as one of my top, basically, guys that, you know, I would say the best as far as teammates. We were, we were never teammates, but we were, I would say we were teammates in a different standpoint. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, we were dedicated to being a good steward of what we were given and from, a, from passing on to the younger generation. And, you know, we all know that Colby did so much for Orange County uh, with the Mama Academy and, you know, for girls basketball, for, for, for women's volleyball. He just did a lot of things because he, he felt that the youth was – it needed this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when I think about the first time that I met Kobe, man, like I remember uh, it was one of the Bulls games. I was had a chance to go to the Bulls game. And I go in the back. The Bulls were, were playing the, the Lakers. And I go in the back and they just – the Bulls just beat the Lakers – and I just hear all the chatter, you know, of guys like, man, that guy, Kobe, man, he can play. And I'm looking at and I'm watching the game like, man, this kid can really play. He's going to be really good. And then, you know, uh, I go over to see Mike. Michael come over, start talking to me as well as his agent, at, as well as agent David Falk, basically introduced, like, hey, Kobe, this is, this is Corey. You know, he'll probably be in the league one day. You know, he said, oh, okay, young fella, you know. I'm like, young fella, dude, we not. That's what I was thinking in the back of my mind. Like, much older than me. And um, that was the first actual meeting. And then the next year, we I met him again as far as playing when, when I played in Orlando. And he just destroyed us. I mean, this, I was like, man, this guy is just unbelievable. So now I was like kind of obsessed with watching Kobe's tapes. And then... You know, my first few years, I didn't have an, an agent. You know, I decided just to, to have a lawyer look over my, my documents um, and contract and did it that way. But later on, uh, Rob Palenka, that, you know, we know who's the general manager for the Lakers at this time, um, had this great conversation with my, with my older brother. And from there, it led to me having a conversation with Rob. And, and then next, the next thing, like if, if, Rob is really the right guy for us for an agent. You got to meet my parents. They'll be able to, you know, read through you. And um, had a great dinner talking to him. You know, if if people don't really know Rob Palenka, he he was part of, you know, that Fab Fab Five. You know, mm-hmm. he was the sixth guy off the bench. He was a shooter, and you know, a very talented guy. And he he just had such a great charisma about him on what he wanted to do at that time, it was SFX. And so the reason I'm saying this, this is kind of how the bridge between Kobe and myself and Rob Palenka started. Because all of a sudden, Kobe was basically designated to for Rob Palenka. So that was Rob's guy. So Aaron Tellum was the owner of SFX. And so you have your different agents that's within the agency. And so now it's Kobe Bryant, and myself and a few other clients at the time. And um, 
And Rob was talking about, yeah, we, I have Colby and about, you know, this guy's unbelievable. He's a good player. And, uh, and, you know, I'm watching. Like, this guy is just an incredible basketball player. And I remember uh, the game that he played. And I was like, man, man, he got a nice haircut, man. So I'm like, man, who is this barber? You know, and so I call Rob. I said, Rob, man, you know, you know, can you can you ask uh, Kobe if I can get his 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 barber's information? And um, he said, well, I said, no, no, well, just give me his number. He said, well, well, Corey, well, let me let me call him first <laughs> and uh, get that information for you. And, um, you know, I'm not sure about his barber and all that. I'm like, like, dude, it's just a barber for a haircut. <laughs> And so we went through the ringer about like trying to use his barber, like crazy to think about that because I wanted a haircut. I'm like, I'm coming from Chicago, right? And like, you know, I thought we had some good guys that do tapers and ball fades and all that. I'm like, I need to find, I need to find a, a guy. I said, man, whoever did Kobe's hair, I gotta find them. And so the next day, I went to Bishop Noel Jones Church down in in L.A. and um sitting uh, on the side pew and and uh my brother introduced me to this guy his name was julian Payne, and he's like hey what's going on man? how you doing man it's good to see you here at church i know you playing on it so oh, man thanks bro you know he said man if you ever need a haircut you know here you go here's my information i said cool man cool he said yeah you know i i cut your cut your boy hair too i said who's my boy i said i cut colby's hair so you cut colby's hair <laughs> I like so so you you're his barber? I said, "Man, listen, I've been trying to trying to find him, man. I, I need a haircut." All it took was church. Man, it, you know, and so all of that to eventually find that I I find Julian for a haircut. And then randomly, I get a call. This number that I don't even know. Hey, what's going on? Hey, it's cold. This cold. I said, "What's up, cold?" Oh, so you found my barber, huh? <laughs> Say what? Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. Julian just told me you, you talked to him. He gave me your number. Yeah, you, you good? You can get a haircut by Julian. Like, <laughs> oh, okay, I, I guess I guess I got the approval. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, like that's 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 far as the relationship how we kind of started was because of that. Like, far as that's the so first funny. meeting, like literally me was because of a haircut. Which led to, you know, a long time friendship. That's so funny. Oh my goodness. Yes. He gave you the permission to get the haircut. Gave me out. the permission to get a haircut from his barber, his personal barber. So funny. So he gave you permission to get a haircut. When when did you now on the court like uh, first gain his respect? So so I remember this is my third year with the with the uh the Clippers and you know, through that time, it was still sporadic. You know, the only, you know, you had these conversations with Coley because of, you know, with Rob Palenka and SFX Sports, but he was so private that I, I understand now why he was the way he was because he didn't want anyone else to know what he was doing. Didn't want to know his tricks, didn't want to know his secrets as far as on a basketball court, the way he watched film. That's what made him so great. He was obsessed with the secrecy of him being this professional guru. And um, 
And I, I asked Rob, you know, like, man, do you think I could work out with him? You know, in, in the summertime, uh, you know, hey, Corey, I'm just not sure. You know, our Kobe is, you know, he's, he's in his own, man. He do workouts at 4 a.m. And like all, like all this, these things that he was telling me, I was like, all right, you know. And so I, I wasn't playing that much in, in my first couple years with the Clippers. And we were playing the Lakers. It was a TNT game. And um, I get in the game and you – know, we just kind of started going at it. Then the second quarter, like the third quarter, um, it was just – it was like kind of like – it was basically you going back to the playground. Like he started talking trash to me, and then I started talking trash to him. Like this guy's averaging 27 points a game. You know, I'm averaging six points a game, right? And so we just started chattering. Going back, I said, okay, all right, we'll see, we'll see what happens. All right, so I'm talking to him. I'm talking mad trash to him. But all of a sudden, man, I'm hitting every single shot on him. This is a TNT game, national national televised game. And I must have scored 18 points on him in that quarter, in the third. You know, I finished with 29 points the game. I don't even know if we won, won or lost, to be honest. It was just that was actually the coming out of me actually seeing, like, my true potential yeah. to play because I'm playing against – you know, not only Kobe Bryant, but this guy's a is a really good defensive player. Mm-hmm. And after the game, Kobe comes over, gives me a big hug, slaps me on uh, slaps me on the butt. He said, "Way to go, young fella! I love the toughness." And that right there opened the door because it allowed me to work out with him. It allowed me to get those calls, and I'll say, "Hey, Corey, here's my number. You know, call me. Let's work out." And um, it was it was probably the most surreal experience for me because I had this like inside track to to work with one one of the greatest players, you know, that played. Yeah. And um, it was all because of you have to earn respect. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the, if you look at the mantra from an old school basketball, that's what it that's what it was. Right. You know, you have to earn respect before you actually get respect. Mm-hmm. And that game gave me that respect and so you know that kind of started the relationship for you know Kobe and I wow what you know I don't I don't know what it was but people kind of had this I guess he maybe had this reputation that he wasn't super relational mm-hmm. he didn't have really close relationships and I guess to some degree maybe that was true but you know I've, I've heard some things as far as from you guys I mean you had uh, a close relationship, and I know even for Sergio, for your oldest son, he was there at times. Tell us about about that side of Kobe that a lot of people don't really know about. Well, I would say is that Kobe was a very secret person. Um, I'm not saying secret like he was hiding things. I just think he was very private. He tried to separate the game of basketball from his family because it wasn't like he can go out and go to a movie theater like you know we all can, right? He needed to have security, and it was so many people from an attention standpoint that wanted to touch him or be around him or take a picture. And um, he really valued that aspect of his family and his kids. And he was he was such a really really good family man when it came to that. Like he did everything for his kids, right? Like he we we know. And um, and for for me being able to experience the normalcy of who Kobe, who Kobe was, I mean, 
it, it, it kind of makes me get emotional when I think about that because, mm-hmm. you know, my son Sergio at this time, he's, he's a young kid. And, um, and Colby, I said, hey, Colby, you know, I'm, I'm going to be here. You know, if you're free, whatever you want to do. But my son is his birthday. You know, if you want to come, oh, I'll be there. What? You're going to come to Sergio's birthday party? You know, these people might be bothering you or something, man. Like, you know, and um, he shows up at Sergio's birthday party wow. for five straight years. Came to Sergio's birthday party. Brought his whole family to Sergio's birthday party. And you saw the, the human aspect of who Colby, who Colby was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, this is not what people really think that, you know, this guy, this basically Batman that's hiding in a cave this guy actually really has a a great personality. You know, he was very relational, being able to talk to those people and people they didn't even know, um, to talk to them and see how they were doing, to dedicate his time to to come and, you know, hang out with my family and my son mm. and to make him feel special for that day on his birthday. You know, that really changed for me. It changed it changed everything for me on the way I, I thought who Colby was, right? Yeah. And it gave me a different approach. So now I knew that this guy was basically really human, right? And um and and most people don't get a chance to see that. You know, I remember, you know, at the time uh, G, uh Gigi had she had asthma and uh Colby was out uh he was out of the country. So he couldn't get back, and Gigi had to go to the hospital. And he he called me. He was like, "Hey, um, you know, do you mind going by to to check check on you know them at the at the hospital?" And I was like, "Of course, man." So I went by and you know stayed there with Vanessa, her mom, and we just sat there, you know, making sure Gigi was okay at that time, and. And I just sat there and talked with his family. And you see how normal the family then the family is, right? And for him to, to, to actually have faith in me to actually go by there, to, to sit with them, right? And so, like, for me, it, it really changed my whole perspective on who Kobe was and hmm. the person. And when you fast forward that, Ryan and, and T, um, on when he retired from the game of basketball, I, I personally, I thought he would have a, a harder time uh, making that adjustment because he played 20 years in the game. And so can you make the adjustment of of being just Kobe Bryant, not Kobe Bryant, the basketball p- player? And he actually did it. Like he dedicated his time to be a dad and to go pick up his kids to go and watch sports to to the point to come here you know to to Newport Christian School to come talk to basketball campers just to be around like he 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 understood that basketball was over and that his time to really dig into being a great family mm-hmm. man and a normal guy around that most people thought he wasn't he he dedicated his time to do that, and yeah. as well as his other ventures that he that he had. Yeah, he was, you know, because of Maggetti basketball being here and and him coming and, and working out of the gym, and you had arranged for him to come and speak to some of the kids, and and then I had an opportunity to meet him. He really does, like you mentioned, he makes everyone feel like 
he's invested in that conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you, you, you can meet people and I have too, and I'm sure you have, especially in your, you know, people with, you know, a big name or something like that can act almost arrogant or kind of, you know, I'm better than you or anything like that. And and Kobe never did that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when he was with his family, he wasn't, you know, going to go take pictures with everyone, which I think most people respected, Mm -hmm. but he made you feel so each person he spoke to really important. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember the conversation that you and I and him had, um, even just for five minutes, um, was just eye contact, fully invested in, and engaged in that conversation. Um, and so that was a really unique perspective that, you know, you almost look at people as a, as a different level. Mm-hmm. Or, or, and, same. Uh, yeah. It's the same. He's just a, a normal guy you that know? enjoys spending time with his family and hanging out with friends. And he's just an amazing, gifted basketball player. And, and even to the fact that, you know, for, for us, you know, we have kids, right? Mm-hmm. And you started to see, like, you wanted to protect who he was. You know, the fact is so he can come and watch his his daughter play the game of basketball without people bothering him because you had so much respect to the fact of who he was and to dedicate his time. And so that's that's the beauty that we 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 had a chance to see, you know, even you, Terrell, when, when he was here, we had a chance to see him act like a normal dad. Yeah. Like most people, like you said, thought he, it was something different. No, he came there to be a dad. He came there to be supportive. He came there to represent the Bryan family because of what he, who he wanted to watch play the game of basketball. Hmm. Yeah. I remember the first time I had seen him and met him. It was you know at, at one of Gigi's games, you know, just coaching against coaching against her, and just seeing this tall figure like right behind me, and it was just like, "How's it going, Coach? How yeah. you doing? You know, it's gonna be." And it was like, Whoa, "This is yeah. <laughs> this it's 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 crazy." But yeah, he's just a normal dad who's just excited to watch his kids play, and so it was just you know, cool experience for me, you know, what was, what would you say some of, what were some lessons or things that maybe Kobe just maybe one-on-one talked to you about, whether some, maybe it was directly or indirectly about either being a parent or just a basketball player, or things like that. I would say for, you know, I was think about the last couple of years. Um, uh, Kobe has some great information and, the, the best information was to put your head down and do the work. Mm. And what I mean by that is that I said, Cole, what, what do you mean by that? He's like, you know, you're going to have so, so much chatter. You're going to have so many people saying things about you that might not be true. You're going to have so many people against you in so many ways. And the only thing that you need to worry about is your family and to put your head down and do the work. Let worry about your family. Worry about the people that you, that cares about you unconditionally. Mm-hmm. The people that are around, they're all conditional. Like conditional. And and you have to really think about what he was what he was saying. And so I, I really value that 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 advice. The other advice, um, in the championship game of the big three. The, the game before it actually pulled both of my hamstrings. And I'm like, man, Cole, I said, shoot, man, I, I, don't, know, I don't know how I'm going to get through this game. And I said, like, my, my hamstrings, I, like, I don't even know if I'm going to play. He said, listen, this is what I need to tell you. You need to limit the amount of movement that you, that you have and be very precise, precise on the movement that you do. 
Use more of your jab steps. Jab steps. Stay in the low post, the mid range area, so you can so you can be more effective. And um, because if your hamstrings are bothering, you're not going to have the 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 energy to be able to run around those screens or be at that high pick and roll. Let let that part of the game take care of itself. And now when you get a little little adrenaline. It, it will give you a chance to do some of those things that your hamstrings might not want you to do early in the game. And, uh, and when you think about how detailed uh, he was in a moment, you know, that's exactly what I did that entire game. Hmm. Um, and for me to, you know, to have two pulled hamstrings, and I mean two pull hamstrings, it like before the game, I, I literally couldn't walk. And I'm so thankful that, you know, my Lord and Savior was able to give me the strength to be able to go out on the floor. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to miss the chance to be a champion at that level. And for him to give me that strength and take this advice and and actually put it into play, you know, I scored 27 points that game, which I still don't know how I was – I really don't know how. I know why. Those are the people that don't know the big three. Yeah. It goes up to 50. It goes up so to 50. So you scored over half of your team's points. Half of <laughs> our team points. And and to where I couldn't even move. And you think about, you know, you think about the love of Christ and how important, you know, he was for me at that time. Mm-hmm. It, it gave me the chance to win. We won a championship. I was MVP of the of league like crazy, MVP of the of the, of the championship game, so many things that you yeah. never would expect it. Um, but back to what Colby did, as far as teaching me how to be more detailed and to think more clearly when the fact when it comes to when you have an injury and how to mm-hmm. to assert yourself on a basketball court. Wow, you know, I think we're you know moving into this next question. It's kind of about the Mamba mentality mm-hmm. and. Maybe because the big three is is gaining momentum, but it hasn't gone. You know, it's it's not as mainstream, I guess you can say. But it's yeah. gained a ton of momentum. But I don't think people really recognized what you did those first two years. I mean, your first year tearing your Achilles, which is one of the worst injuries in basketball. You know, maybe other than breaking your femur, that's one of the worst injuries in basketball. Back twenty years ago, people didn't recover from that. Mm-hmm. That was career ending. Coming back from tearing your Achilles to that next season, becoming MVP of the league, winning a championship, becoming the MVP of the championship game, scoring 27 points. You you had the scoring record that year. Um, I think that those few years, you really embodied the Mamba mentality. Um, And a lot of that, I think you can attribute to things that he taught you. Maybe talk about what it means, the Mamba mentality, and how that translated to now you playing and what you had to overcome in the big three. That's a great question. And, you know, the the year that I tore my Achilles, you know, my fourth phone call was actually from Kobe. So, hey, you know, you know, you, it's, it, you tore your Achilles. It's okay. Now it's time to get to work. Wow. That was his response. Now it's time <laughs> to get to work. Wow. You know, don't sulk in your own misery. misery. Now it's time mm. to get to work. I'm thinking like, man, I just tore my Achilles, yeah. and I'm really mad. I was like, I got these Kobe's on too, and I tore my Achilles, <laughs> and um, and he checked on me, and he, 
gave me all the information on what he did, um, the doctors that he talked to as far as, far as that. And when I think about that season and trying to prepare myself for that, the season we, we won the championship, it was, it was all about being locked in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when you talk about the Mamba mentality, that mentality is built off of you're having a conversation or you're basically you're on the court by your, yourself and you cannot hear anything else. It's completely blank. And you get to do the moves as the defender is not even there. And you feel like you are in this, we'll say, this bubble that it's only you and every shot that you shoot is all to better you. And when you go into that zone, it's, it's not too many people that can stop you when and you're in that zone. Mm-hmm. And, and we've seen so many guys in the NBA when they have these huge scoring nights and they lock in, their response is the Mamba mentality. Because when you have that mentality, you're just locked in, you know. And for me, when I take when I think about that, you know, I had I had my higher power, which was Jesus Christ, that allowed me to do that. You know, which is my real Mamba Mamba mentality, hmm. and I use all of that to allow me to lock in to be that dominant force that entire season. And what I did was I led I led by the mindset of. First of all, how God wanted me to approach all of those games. And then I live with the other approach from from Kobe is to be as detailed as possible. And do not let do not let them have any momentum. Eliminate the contender is something they would say. Eliminate them. And the only way you, you would eliminate them is by destroying them on the basketball court. Sucking out all the air uh, in that you're opposing player, and and that's kind of how I approach every single game. Right? I mean, every single game I was so locked in that it was nothing that anyone can say or do that would throw me off that path. And when you're in that zone, is you you feel like your your goal is is for a championship mentality, right? You know, the Mamba mentality is really far as the leadership to lead you to a championship. It, it takes you to the level. The ultimate goal. Yeah. And and that was the ultimate goal. You know, when, when I look back, especially at that season, that I was so locked in to have that, that right mindset and um, to, to approach the game differently than I've ever approached the game, even in my NBA ca- career. You know, that really showed, you know, the the Mamba mentality that I had that entire season. Hmm. Well, as we uh, continue on to the last part of the show, um, you know, let's talk about some of the coolest or, you know, the best Mamba moments or Kobe moments that we've kind of seen, <laughs> seen, you know, as fans and even get I got the perspective best one. Of, 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 a, of a player. So uh, tell us, you know, from your perspective, what was your what was your favorite Mamba moment. Oh man, I, this is 
I don't know if I told this story to anyone. Maybe I told one other person. Um, this is an exclusive. This right is here. an exclusive story. All right. And so this is when we, the NBA was in a lockout, lockout season. And around that time, you know, if, if anyone doesn't know what a lockout is, that, you know, is, there's no basketball season and the players are not getting paid. This was like ninety eight, ninety nine. This was no. This was a, the second part. This was uh, two thousand something. I'm not sure when. Two thousand twelve, maybe. Yeah, like right around that. It was. It was a time that they. It was. It was the change of the collective bargaining agreement, and the NBA and the NBA Players Association didn't agree on a deal. So all of a sudden, that means it's a lockout until they figure out, you know, for a common goal how it works. Mm-hmm. And so, what happened? A lot of Players and you know, you know, organizations. People wanted to start to make these like celebrity games, and um, you know, we would try to pay pay players to come play in these games. And so I'm in Denver, Colorado, at this time. You know, my with my other best friend TJ Terrence Doyle, and and TJ is putting together this huge game, and so we just got confirmation from KD and all these other guys, right? And and um. And KD took, you know, took less money to want to be involved. Like, we had all these really good guys. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so I'm at the board table. I'm at, like, literally at a board room table inside this restaurant. And it's all these, like, high net worth, worth individuals around the table who was going to be able to fork out this money to get guys to play in their different cities. And so I'm here at the table. We're talking. We're eating. And they said, what well, you know, you know what would have been really great if we can get we can get Kobe Bryant. That would be, man, that would just be the best. And we could probably pay him, you know, between 150, maybe 200. You know, like that's that's like our threshold. Maybe we can pay that. You know, is it? Do anybody know? I said, oh, right, well, I, I know Kobe. You know, I can probably call him and ask him. Like, really? I yeah. So I call him. Put my phone on speaker. Right in front of the entire boardroom. And, um, Cole, what's up, man? Yo, what up? What up, Fiddy? I said, hey, man, um, what do you think about playing in this, in these charity games? And, um, you know, I I got, I'm thinking about putting one together. We we just wanted to know, like, um, like how much would it take to, to get you to, to play? And, um, he said, well, well, do you want Kobe Bryant or you want the Mamba? <laughs> I said, well, Kobe is going to cost you 500000 But if you want the Black Mamba, that's going to cost you a cool million. This is what he said. <laughs> I'm on speaker with everyone at the table. I turn over to look at my buddy TJ. And I'm like, TJ, did he just say a million dollars for the black mamba, <laughs> and I said, "Oh, yeah, 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 okay, okay, Cope, uh, yeah, I talk to you later, bro." All right, all right, all right. And so we're sitting there, and it's like this dead silence in the room. And one of one of the guys inside, wait, wait, listen, guys, did, did he just say <laughs> the black mamba for one million dollars? Is he serious? And I just literally fell out laughing, but I was so embarrassed, right? Like, I just put him on the phone, 
like in front of everybody. So, you know, I'm laughing it off. Like I, I leave the room and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. I can't believe he just said that. He just said a million dollars for the black mamba. And I couldn't believe, I mean like, that gotta be one of the funniest stories of all time, I would say with Cole. We are, <laughs> like, that, that story, man. that is one of the greatest things yeah, I've ever heard. This, one of the greatest ones. We're gonna of have all to time. promote that story. Definitely yes, sure. yes. That, one, that's, <laughs> that is funny. hilarious. So, needless to say, he didn't play in the tournament. <laughs> he did not play. I, our our budget didn't allow a million dollars for one player. And you didn't just want Kobe. You wanted the Black Mamba. Man, we wanted the Black Mamba. You don't just want you know just Kobe. You want the Black Mamba. That's so funny. I like yeah. Wow. That story goes down in history. It's probably um, one of my other great stories with, with Kobe. Uh, he lived he lived in uh, Newport Coast, and so he would always go to Starbucks, right? And um, you know, at that time, we were staying in the same community, and we would. <laughs> this is just the funniest one. It's the second funniest one. So we we driving. So Kobe stays further back in the back part of the community. And we stay closer to the entrance of where the gate, the gate is, and um, and I'll usually be outside with the family or the kids. We're outside. We usually like taking walks up the hill and all this. And then uh, Kobe would always drive. He had you know he had this black Range Rover. He would always ride with his with one window down. The the, the driver window would always be down, like he's driving. And everybody see Kobe. Hey Kobe, like this, like. You know, like he's the president. <laughs> and so one day, it was just the weirdest day, he pull up and he looks at me like, yo, 50, what's up, man? I said, what's up, Cole? What you, what you doing in here? I said, Cole, I, I live in here. He said, oh, oh, okay, okay, all right. And he drives off. So I'm looking like, you didn't think I lived here with you? <laughs> We've been here for five years. You know, I lived here, and then all of a sudden, we he drives to to uh, the shopping center where there's the pavilions and the Starbucks and all that, right? And this is where he would he would take his girls and they would have coffee. He would take uh, and it's a nail salon. He would take his girls there to get their get their nails done, and um, we would always know when Kobe was. At pavilions, if we were going to the grocery store, we were going to this like Crave Burgers, burger spot that we go to. We would always know when Kobe was in the vicinity. You just start seeing all these people coming out of Starbucks and you see people taking pictures in Starbucks. And, you know, just like Kobe. And this is the cool thing about what I loved about him when he did that. Regardless on how many people was there staring in the window or inside uh, Starbucks, his time, when I tell you, was designated for his kids and his family. It was like when, when, you, when I tell you about the black mamba and the mamba mentality, it basically blocks out everyone else that, that is in the room. It was only him and his kids. He, he didn't worry about a picture. He didn't worry about people calling his name. He was focused on spending that time in Starbucks with his kids. And I'm just, and I was so amazed by that because we would drive, I would drive past him like, man, these people are idiots. Why are you just standing there right outside? Like, let the man 
enjoy you know if he's having coffee just let him enjoy it and if if millie and i will walk past there we'll see him and he'll see us and he'll wave and we just wave we'll keep it going because we didn't want to go in there and interrupt his time that he was there with his girls because i know that that's that private time that you enjoy yeah like it was it was a ritual for him to be at that starbucks and to take his kids to that to that nail salon wow yeah what was your favorite encore kobe moment Encore Kobe moment. There's so many. I mean, the 81, Man. the final game. So, yeah, the final game, right. That's probably, I would say, the 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 worst decision that I made. I was so, uh, you look about what the Bulls did as far as the record of 72-10, 72-10. And I decided to go to Golden State to watch that game. And, um. It was on the same night. Yeah, it was on the same night. So you had the record that was broken, history of the record, right? And then you had Kobe, his final game, and he scored 60 points. And I remember at the game, and I'm like, wow, man, Golden State, they're about, to, they're about to break the Bulls record. So, And then and they kept, I keep getting you know, alerts, like, man, now Kobe is, like, taking off. And then I go from, like, Man, I'm watching this game, but all of a sudden I'm like going to the side watching that game. And I remember Rob, you know, say, "Hey, you know, hey, see him. You gonna you gonna come to the game tonight?" I was like, "Nah, man. I'm going. You know, I'm gonna go check this out, right?" You know, I wasn't a big fan of like going to the Lakers Lakers game. You know, I just I don't even think I've ever been to an actual Lakers game, but you know, besides me going there to play. Wow. And so <laughs> I was like, "Nah, I'm not." going there i'm not gonna go there and just so happens the reason i was in golden state because i had to do an event there and so that's kind of what what happened you know it was for american express or something and um and i think about like man that's one thing that i i wish that i could have sat and watched and experienced that i remember going home that night and watching that game over from the start to finish and i was like man i should have been there like i should have i should have been there and like watched the game instead of like i have to watch it on tv but um that's that's probably the the when you talk about an encore moment you know for him to do that and not just the scoring part of it like if you're a basketball fan you know, most basketball fans are just looking at it like, oh, man, he scored 60 points, right? This this last game, he dropped the mic. No, I'm looking at it from a whole different – I'm looking at it from the way Kobe was looking at it, from a detail and a mentality. And not only did he score 60 that game when at that moment, if you saw, saw his interview, he didn't think that he was going to do that. But the Utah Jazz were supposed to go to the playoffs – and they needed that game mm-hmm. for that last playoff spot. And so he felt that that they were basically disrespecting him. And I'm going to show you who the Black Mamba is. I'm going to show you. And I'm going to ruin your chances to go to the playoffs. And he literally willed that team to win that game and to knock the Utah Jazz out of the playoffs. That's the most impressive thing about that. Mm-hmm. Not just the 60 and what he did, 
But the impressive part is that he got the 60 points, but he eliminated the Utah Jazz from making the playoffs. So if I'm not going to make the playoffs, you're not going to make the playoffs. Yeah. And that's the mentality that Kobe had that set him apart from everyone else. I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. And and it wasn't it wasn't like they weren't guarding him either. They were they were all over him, especially that last five minutes. He was feeling it, and they were they were up on him like crazy. I mean, they were switching. Man, they were Gordon doing Hayward everything. Was, I mean, everything. Yeah. They were doing everything possible to stop him, and and that's the blackout moment. That's the Mamba mentality mm-hmm. moment when whenever you do whatever you do on a court, it, it's it's no one can stop you, and and. We've seen countless times, Kobe, or any you know, even players today. You know, you think about what's happening in the playoffs now with Damian Lillard kind of willed his team to make the playoffs, mm-hmm. and you just kind of black out, and it's only you, and you figure out a way to eliminate your opponent by sucking the life out of him and and dominating him on all aspects on the basketball court, and then it was his offensive game too, but. It was still what he did defensively. It was defensive plus uh, defle- defensive deflections that he had, steals that he had, rebounds, blocks that he had in those crucial moments in that time of the game that changed it. Now all of a sudden that allowed you know the energy from the entire re- arena to erupt, and now all of a sudden for a player that's on this high, it goes to another level when you have the fans and. You know, the excitement of having a home court advantage, your fans rooting for you to give you that extra power. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's when I think about that. I, I think about all those little detailed things about that game that made it such a memorable memorable game that, you know, of course, would go down in the history. I mean, it would always be talked about. Oh, definitely. Well, Corey, seriously, thank you so much for oh, coming on and just allowing us to talk about Kobe and remember him and obviously our prayers are continuing yes with the Bryant family and with Vanessa and the kids um you know especially I know you had a, a close relationship with that family and continuing to pray for them and lift them up during this time and uh, but we're super thankful for you we always like to at the end of the episode give a little minute to uh, allow the listeners to kind of jump into your life kind of what you got going on mm-hmm. right now we know Maggetti basketball obviously run here at the church and school um, but kind of tell us a little about what's going on with you right now well, you know, everyone is trying to be safe around this time um, with the coronavirus. And I think uh, as far as our family, just trying to do our part, you know, and our part, you know, I would say is is trying to help people that are less fortunate. And I mm-hmm. think that's, you know, that's the, the the unbelievable thankfulness that I have for, you know, for Millie and her sister, Anna, that that really dedicate themselves to helping others and and really, it just kind of it rubs off on everyone else in the family, not just myself, but on my kids, that they want to be able to serve and be able to help people. And so that's something that we've we've done. Um, the other part about of this this what's happening with me in the world today is, is you know, I'm still doing Clipper stuff. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm an analyst for Fox and we're still doing games. You know, it's a game going on right now. I think the game is over. The Clippers were up, but we had a day off. Um, as far as not going into the studio, and so I've had the chance to to do that and stay stay connected from the basketball standpoint and be able to talk to some of those guys and the players and you know it's a, it's a, it's a change to be yeah. you know stuck into that bubble 
and uh, the way those guys are approaching it from a mental standpoint, because it's totally, you, you know, forget about the physical stand of the game. It's a, it's a mental. Whoever wins this championship, it's a, the mental toughness, mm -hmm. you know, to be in that bubble and to be away from your family. So uh, we, we, we kind of experience that when we go inside the studio. We have to do our testing, and we're, you know, in an office that is 100-plus people. It's only 12 in there, and we're separated. And so we, we get that part of it. And um, and lastly, I, I've been trying to trying to go to the beach a, a lot. Okay, we, you know we we have this nice little area that we go to, and Sergio uh, he wants to be a surfer now, right? And <laughs> and so I, I mean we 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 found this this joy of going to the beach, and you just see the beauty of what you know what, you know just the beauty of what God built, yeah. right? And um. And we go there and we just have fun, man. And I'm, and it's been great because I get to spend this this great this great family time that I probably would never never have hmm. or never had, you know. Um, especially when you think about me playing for so long and then going into TV, and so your schedule is is changing. But you know, during the coronavirus, it's it's really been a great experience for a lot of people, not just myself to have that one-on-one -on -one time with their family members that they probably couldn't have had because it forced their jobs and everything else. So I, I've had this, this amazing time to, to reflect, um, to build those, those relationships from an intimate standpoint. And, um, and that's about it. You know, that's, that's, that's the only thing I've, I've done during this time. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us, Corey. Thanks, and, uh, guys. People can catch you on the Clippers pregame. You can yes. catch you on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, thanks for listening to another episode of Water Break. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Water Break. New episodes are released every Monday. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is available. As you continue to listen to the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you'd like to get feedback on the show or you have a topic you'd like us to discuss, send an email to waterbreakpod at gmail.com. Once again, that's waterbreakpod at gmail.com. We'll see you on the next episode of Water Break. Stay hydrated. <laughs>